Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Folks, it's hardly a day goes by we don't hear about China, a lot about China. And so I'm going to go right to our guest, Dave Stillwell. He is highly qualified to speak about this. Uh, Dave, I'm just so honored to have you on. Thank you for coming on. That's really, we really respect your time. Would you take a few moments and tell us, give us a little bit of biographical sketch for the first couple minutes and then jump right into the topics and help us understand China and to the extent you have time, Taiwan. I know you're also an expert on North Korea and other things, but we'll probably focus primarily on China and in Taiwan. Welcome, Dave Stillwell. Tell us a little bit about yourself and talk to us about China. Well, thanks. I'm really happy to, to be here. Uh, and uh, I love what you guys are doing. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles in uh, pretty uh, sketchy circumstances after a broken family and all the rest that goes with that. Uh, and so at about 12 years old uh, in 1973, a woman named Barbara Tuckman published a book called Stillwell, spelled my, the way we spell it, which is different than most, still on the American experience in China. And uh, as a 12-year-old, I read this giant history book from cover to cover. It was fascinating. Learned about China, learned about this guy named Stillwell. And it actually gave me something to shoot for, something I could you know, aim for in the future. And so my entire life has somehow led me to this, obviously with a lot of help from many uh, sectors. But um, I ended up enlisting in the Air Force because there were no opportunities growing up in Los Angeles. Ended up going as a Korean linguist, didn't learn Chinese then. Uh, but I spent time in Korea, uh, went to the Air Force Academy, got commissioned, uh, and then I took Chinese at the Air Force Academy and then ended up as a defense attache in Beijing, which is the basis for most of this briefing. And then at one point, uh, a call went out for some help with the um, Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration, someone who had a China background, to run the uh, East Asia Pacific Bureau. And so I put my hand up as a joke, told my wife, there's no chance I'll go. And then 14 months later, I was at the State Department running the East Asia portfolio for a fantastic guy, Mike Pompeo. I think you guys know him, and uh, you, know, you couldn't ask for a better guy to work for. That's uh, that's impressive. You mentioned Mike Pompeo. Your 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 resume is phenomenal. But by the way, folks, watch Mike Pompeo and Ambassador David Friedman have released a brand new movie called Route sixty Route sixty, not sixty six, uh, Route sixty, and has to do with the road of the patriarchs in Israel. That movie is coming out. September 18th and 19th 18th in theaters across the country 1500 theaters and it's featured those two guests since he mentioned Mike Pompeo I wanted you to be aware of that uh, having said that what an uh, impressive uh, resume you have sir teach us about China okay well if we can uh, open with the slides you might try to look at them than me so uh I mean, where do you start? 4,000 years of history, uh, just a fantastic culture and society that's been hijacked by a, an illegitimate government. You know, authoritarianism, communism, and the things that we thought died in 1991 have brought uh, come roaring back in this era, and we're going to have to figure out how to deal with it. And we, I think we have dealt with it quite well, but there's more work to be done. And so people talk about soft power. You hear a lot about cooperation, and I think uh, the real the formula for success going forward is something called hard cooperation. Well, we, we need to work with them. The Chinese people, it's not their fault that they have to deal with this. And they, trust me, they're suffering far more than we are. 
Uh, let me just start here just saying my church in China, I, we were really worried we wouldn't be able to go to church in China. I mean, we're, we're, everything is controlled by the government and religion is anathema to communism. So we had the best church there I've ever had anywhere. It's called the Beijing International Christian Fellowship. If anybody's aware or knows of it, raise a hand. And it was, it was every, it was 5,000 or more per weekend coming there to worship the same God. Uh, everything was, uh, it was, it was so encouraging because this is international. I mean, John from Mali and Thomas from Germany hosted, and we all believe the same thing. And if you're wondering, uh, another quick story here, they were threatening to close us down and, and kick us out of this uh, theater during the week that we set up for uh, church on Sundays. And so the pastor, uh, John, I think it was name here a second. He says, no, that's fine. We'll do that. We'll just break up to about 100 uh, home churches. And I'm like, okay, no, that's okay. It's going to be too hard to monitor all those. So you guys keep worshiping where you're at. So, um, but look, we're going to have to figure out how to work with these people. And the, the, the point of this photo, this is the most recent interaction with the Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo's successor, guy, Tony Blinken, uh, in Beijing. And, and look at the setup of this, this meeting here. You've got the, 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 the party secretary, Xi Jinping, sitting at the head of the table. And on either side of that horseshoe table arrangement, you've got the Americans and the Chinese, but he's refereeing. Basically, he's putting himself above both the Americans and the Chinese, which he runs, but he's putting himself above the Americans. This is a test to see if the Americans were, would accept this, and they did accept it. Uh, Mike Pompeo would have never accepted this. Uh, this is, go ahead, next slide, please. Wow. Uh, back one. Interesting. Okay. Uh, there you go. Everything's a test. And so uh, the PRC is always pushing to ask how hard can we push or, or test us. So that's uh, yeah, Xi Jinping and Kissinger. And that's the normal setup is the what we call the puffy chair arrangement where you have the two leads and then the staffs arrayed down the side. So again, the, what we're dealing with now is a test. We're going to keep getting tested as this goes on and we need to be able to push back. We Americans have to be able to say no. There's Mike Pompeo talking to Xi Jinping uh, and keep building. Uh, and there you go. And there's my old boss, Marty Dempsey, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs sitting next to Xi Jinping. That is how these meetings are supposed to go. You're not with the, the, low, the lone leader at the head of the table. So we have to better understand the PRC and better. So good slide, leave it there. So the- PRC the, the, for what, Dave, PRC? One more time. PRC stands for? Oh, uh, the People's Republic of China. Okay, that's a thank you for that intro. Uh, I will never say China unless I mean the Chinese people and the Chinese culture and the Chinese food and the Chinese language. Everything we're talking about today has to deal with the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, or the People's Republic of China, the communist organization that sits on top of all these wonderful people. So yeah, PRC, People's Republic of China. Now let's figure out how we got where we are today. Again, I think I love China. I love the idea of the China. Uh, it, you know, Tsinghua University, the most second most famous university in China, was started by Christian missionaries. Okay, and and the 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 positive interaction between the PRC between the Chinese people and us goes back you know a long time, hundreds of years. And so, what ties uh, East Asia together? Well, first of all, it's going to be language and culture. If you can uh, build, please. Four big inventions, uh, movable type and paper, both speak to language and education. And that is a core uh, aspect of Chinese culture. 
is education and they value it uh, a lot. Now, how they go about it is a little different than we do. The students, don't, so they sit there quietly, they don't speak. Uh, the students have to basically listen to what the teacher says, write it down and regurgitate it. So, but they, they, they revere education. The other two of the four big inventions are gunpowder and the compass, both which could have military applications. But with gunpowder, build please, uh, they, instead of making a cannon, they made fireworks to scare off evil spirits. It took a European to put a projectile in front of uh, a bunch of gunpowder in a tube and kill people with it. And the other thing they uh, created was the compass. Slide, please. That is a Chinese word for compass. And this, I, I put this up there to show you that our two cultures could not be more different. The word for compass in Chinese breaks out as zhi. The first character is zhi, to point with your finger, zhi. The second character is nan, south. And the last one is zhen, needle. It is the needle that points south. Almost everything in their culture and ours is an opposite like that. They see it differently. The fact is, it doesn't really matter. It points basically to the North Pole. But anyway, Jernan Jun, one more build. And that's uh, another thing is the sheer size of their compass. It was a cart that you pull behind you. Okay, slide, please. So look, they, they technologically, China's been way out in front for a long time. They developed high intensity agriculture and all the rest. Um, our relations with the PRC, with the Chinese, have been generally positive over the years. Unlike the Europeans, we did not go there to establish colonial relationships or colonies or empire. You, the Brits and the French and Russia carved up the Chinese countryside pretty bad. And you'll hear a lot of that regret and uh, angst from that in Chinese PRC government language. But for the US, we basically wanted a trade relationship. So that is what began the open door policy. Uh, the Roosevelt family, FDR family, uh, was had very close ties with the trading uh, with China at the time, uh, the uh, clipper ships and all that stuff. And a lot of people don't remember that the U.S. and China, especially in the Chinese side of the Pacific, don't remember that we were allies. Build, please. U.S. and China, uh, we thousands of Americans are dead and, and hopefully buried in China from World War II. Uh, from uh, removing the Japanese uh, from China, holding the Japanese down so the invasion of the Japanese mainland in 1945 could happen with minimum American casualties. Two nuclear weapons solved that problem, but many in, in current day PRC forget that we were very close and close friends. Uh, and there are still veterans from that era, like this guy, uh, who are still alive and who still very much value that relationship. Slide. Well then, 1945 was in World War II, the Chinese Civil War began, the nationalists and the communists fought, and by 1947, it was clear that the communists were going to win, so the nationalists fled to Taiwan. We can talk about that later. And the, the communists established the People's Republic in uh, 1949. Short year after that, the Korean War began. It was North Korea invading South Korea, but it was Chinese holding their jacket and then invade and entering the war in October. The war began in June. By October of 1950, uh, China had involved uh, there. Now, the point here is that the PRC has always called, since this time, refers to the U.S. as the enemy, or and they assume because we don't speak Chinese that we can't possibly understand that. Well, it's not that hard to see when you read their text. And the word for the Korean War, as shown here, is Kangmei, resist the U.S. They claim we invaded North Korea, and Yuan Chao, support North Korea, Chao Chosen, Chosen, which you know is Chosen. Build, please. They say all these things in Chinese, they will not say it. Occasionally it slips out. And then uh, I can give you examples of that. But this is a movie about the Changjin Reservoir, about how the Chinese volunteers, quote, volunteers uh, supported uh, and helped, you know, 
murder a whole bunch of American Marines in October, November of 1950. Slide, please. So what does that mean? You can see North Korea has a little appendage there over on the far right side in orange. Uh, this is a traditional map of China. And that you can see the Great Wall, that kind of uh, snaggletooth line up there. That marks the traditional northern boundary of what we think of as Chinese culture. Everything north of that has been bolted on. The northeast there are Manchus. There are a lot of North Koreans that live in northeastern China. Those political borders that you see there are political borders. There's Koreans that live uh, in China. You've got the Mongolians in the center in outer and inner Mongolia. And on the left side, you've got the Uyghurs in Xinjiang who are currently being uh, murdered at a horrible rate as they conduct genocide in, the, in Xinjiang. And then south of that is Tibet that borders India. And again, there's an active border war between India and China, but the same thing in Tibet. They actively murdered a whole bunch of Tibetans because they don't consider them human. They call them animals. Don't move. Um, anyway, this gives you an idea. Bill, please. That red box says that this area, that big area is not current China. That's all been taken back by the Russians. But that was ceded to China in, 18, uh, in 1689 through the Treaty of Nerchinsk. In 1860, at the end of the Opium Wars, the first of the unequal treaties with the UK, France, and nobody talks about it, with Russia, took all that territory back to include Vladivostok, that port at the border of North Korea and Russia. Uh, that is the only access China could have to the Sea of Japan. But uh, the Russians don't allow them access to the Sea of Japan. Any discussion of Russia and China being friends is misguided, does not understand that history. Uh, slide, please. Uh, and as you've heard, uh, the PRC is going to recover its lost territories, right, through their program of rejuvenation. And, and this makes them an, ex an expansionist threat to us and to our allies, uh, Korea and Japan and others in the region. Slide, please. They do take a while. Um, when you hear about the Silk Road, this is what that was. This is what, when the China talks about its height, its glory, this was in the Tang Dynasty, 600 to 900 AD. Um, and you can see that map is much smaller than what we have the modern map today. Uh, and so again, any claims that the current map of China has always been that way are misguided. Slide. But, but China has always, has always traded you know, Marco Polo came through the Silk Road into uh, Mongol China, 1200 AD. And that was one of the first real strong connection with the West, but there's always been trade going back and forth through Central Asia. Okay, I mentioned India earlier. When we talk about China and Asia, they would lead us to believe that all of Asia is under their sway, under their sovereignty, right, or hegemony. That is absolutely not true. Culturally, it's about half-half. And that Southern tier you see all the way through Southeast Asia, except for maybe Southern uh, Vietnam has, is basically harkens to Sanskrit, Hindu, Indian culture. So again, understand that the frictions between 1.4 billion Indian people and 1.4 billion Chinese people and shrinking rapidly are only gonna grow and not shrink. Slide please. Um, Central Asia, I mentioned Marco Polo, uh, One Belt, One Road. Uh, I think I have a slide coming up, so I'll jump to that please, slide. There you go, One Belt, One Road. It's only about a couple things. It's about access to energy. They absolutely need more oil, coal, and the rest. Uh, and they cannot afford to be cut off from that. And so they've built ports. And that, that arrow that goes to the south is going into Burma, a port called Chakpu. The next one at about the eight o'clock position on the clock is the port of Gwadar in Pakistan. That project is not going well. 
But those both are pipelines, so they don't have to go through the South China Sea, which they rightly recognize the U.S. can control, and we do control. Those others are a, uh, that one at the uh, 10 o'clock position, it goes, it's a direct line to Europe. So rather than have to ship their stuff around the continent, they are increasing able to ship to Europe through Central Asia. And that top arcing line is the power of Siberia. It's a natural gas pipeline that goes from uh, the oil fields and gas fields in central Russia into China because China needs the energy badly. Slide, please. That's what they talk about. They talk about the Maritime Silk Road and the uh, land uh, belt. Again, the language doesn't quite match, but they have grand plans. I'll tell you right now, this one belt, one road plan is dying quickly. When uh, the first one belt run road conference, which they called the Belt and Road Forum, the BARF, I'm not kidding you, called it the BARF, uh, the, the word was the Belt Road is China's gift to the world. The next forum, which is 2017, uh, we had taken uh, efforts to make sure people understood exactly what it was, and it was BARF too. And then the motto was Belt and Road isn't that bad. There's another one coming up this fall, so watch the language. It's basically going, hey, don't bail on us. Italy just bailed. Others are going to follow suit. It's going to, it's a bad, it's a bad idea whose time has come. Slide, please. So what is our, our strategy here? Well, as uh, Jim mentioned, the Taiwan is China's focus right now. As long as a democratic Taiwan can exist, it defeats the narrative at home by the PRC that only communism can run China. That's the message they tell the people. But you can't have democracy, Chinese people, because it just won't work. Only this hard-handed authoritarianism can possibly keep China in order, you know, uh, can lead China. We all know that's not true. Communism died in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. So as long as a democratic Taiwan exists, it's a direct threat to the leadership and the legitimacy of the Communist Party of China. Therefore, they're focusing all their effort on that. Well, all of their weapons are arrayed against Taiwan, and that's where they're strongest. And so when I talk about strength against weakness, Let's start thinking about where China is weakest, and that is in the place where they're committing genocide against the Uyghurs, who they fear greatly because they could upset this whole apple cart, and in Tibet. And so India is currently fighting a war on the, on the Chinese border, which borders Tibet. And then again, we have basically friendly nations outside of China and Central Asia, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, where we could set up something that looks a lot like Charlie Wilson's war, if you've seen that movie, uh, very helpful. The other uh, strength that the PRC has that we have to recognize is in the information space. They don't like Christianity. They kill Christianity in their country with every opportunity. They don't like religion, period. Um, that is an opportunity for us to ask, why do you fear religion? But they have direct access to our churches, to our people, to our Congress, to our newspapers, and that we have to be aware of. They spread propaganda quite easily. I have some examples here in a little bit. They also salt money. They spread money and propaganda. So I talk about elite capture down there in the Solomon Islands. They're gonna, they could win this election in Taiwan. It's coming up in January of 2024, less the year, if they pay enough Taiwan people to vote the wrong way like they did in Hong Kong. And so we could see the end of Taiwan without a shot being fired if the election goes a certain way. And we have to be aware of that. Slide, please. Communism needs buffers. They like North Korea because North Korea prevents a democratic and market capitalist South Korea from moving onto its northern border there on the Yalu River and then influencing uh, Northeast China directly, which they already have trouble controlling. So com communist authoritarian countries need borders to separate them from 
what their people want. The Chinese people would love to have democracy. They'd love to live in the U.S. The Chinese people are victims here. Not the they are not the bad guys. They uh, they don't get a whole lot of opportunity. You can read through the rest of that slide if you have questions. We can go through it at the. But I need to dance through these fairly quickly. Slide, please. We Americans take so much for granted. We take freedom of faith and freedom of worship. We take democracy and rule of law for granted. So let me show you how this works. When people ask about American grand strategy, I point to the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, which says all of us are created equal. We're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we just think our kids go, yeah, 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 everybody's got that. No, they don't. So if I were to model the American system, it's the government supports a very small government supports the American people. The law is in place to protect the people from the government. That's exactly how our system works, right? And uh, to secure these rights, governments are instituted by the people, that's us, and deriving their just powers from our consent. Okay, that sounds very normal to you, unless you look at the PRC version, slide please. Believe it or not, this is, they really believe this is true, that the Chinese Communist Party uh, exist um, to the, the govern the people. 1.4 billion people exist to support 94 million communists in the Communist Party. It's called rule by law. The law in China exists to protect the government, the Communist Party, from 1.4 billion people. They a they rule is uh, instituted in a capricious and arbitrary way. You can be arrested for just about anything. You jaywalk and your picture comes up on a billboard, you get fined, your kids get kicked out of their schools. It's authoritarianism. It's the worst of communism that we remember from the 90s and the 80s and 70s, right? But again, we need to spread the word in you know secular terms that this is the model in that the PRC wishes to institute globally and push on the rest of the world. And we cannot sit still for that. Slide, please. Economic interests. We have not been competing. We've been helping the Chinese. The thought in, 19, in 2000 under the Clinton administration is that if we bring China into the World Trade Organization, they'll see the beauty of market access, fair trade and all that stuff. And, you know, peace and love and harmony will break out and they'll become a partner in, in national security and economic security. Well, guess what? 20 years later, that clearly hasn't happened. And during the Trump administration, our job was to say, you know what, as, as Trump said, uh, what we've done with the Chinese and allowed them to do is the greatest theft of national prosperity in the history of the world. And it was in an actual intellectual property theft, uh, access to our markets without giving us similar access in China, World Trade Organization rule violations just by the billions. And so uh, we have to then stand up with our partners like Japan and Europe and the EU and others and push back. If we would do that, that would represent 60% of global uh, prosperity and global economies, and we could easily stop the PRC from doing what it's doing, but they're very good at divide and conquer. So we get our European friends to make backward, backdoor deals, Germans in their auto industry, and that is uh, hurting us in a big way. Slide, please. So we have to lead in the region uh, and we have to lead globally uh, and we continue to do that, but we have to lead in a strong position against and resisting this bad, uh, model of economic uh, non-cooperation slide. Uh, information warfare, they are all over our, our networks. This is, uh, this is the first time we actually went after them. Um, they're, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and a bunch of us of others are hacking your emails, they're hacking my emails, 
they're uh, you know stealing Bitcoin, anything that their hands on, they're stealing. Mostly it's intellectual property. They take the, uh, the good ideas that we come up with, they take them, claim them as theirs, they build the stuff, they sell the stuff, and we end up uh, empty-handed as we are today, which, by the way, gutted the American middle class. I mean, good industrial, hardworking, blue-collar jobs are all gone. We've allowed those to go to the PRC and other places. We've got to get those back because we cannot have a stable society without a solid middle class. Slide, please. Information warfare. Here's a great example in my own home in Hawaii. Uh, if you look at that sign, my wife, Jan, put that sign up. It says, beware of dogs. Well, she meant she ordered dog and they sent the wrong one. It has dogs. And she's going to take it down. I said, no, don't touch that sign because it says dogs. And the people that are going to come rob our house, they're going to imagine there's two. Well, they're going to hear the one dog slide or build. They're going to hear this one dog barking, but that's Dino. And that dog's not going to scare anybody. They got to imagine there's another dog looks just like Dino getting ready to rip their leg off, right? So that's information warfare. Uh, it, I'm not lying. I just didn't change the sign. Slide, please. We are winning without fighting. No, we are winning without biting. In this case, slide, please. Slide. Here's an example of what that looks like. Show of hands, who read 1984 by George Orwell? It's here and now, and we're dealing with it. Uh, I was right in the middle of COVID. Uh, the Wuhan, we have a consulate in Wuhan, and they told us in December of 19, we got a big problem here by January of 20. It showed up on our shores. But if you look on the left, that was a Global Times headline. It said Wuhan pneumonia, because that's what everybody called it, Wuhan Bingdu. They still called that in China. So when we called it the Wuhan virus or the China virus, Everybody starts yelling racism. How is that racist? China's not a race. Han is a race. But we allowed the Chinese government, the PRC, to invade our information space and say, oh, it's so racist to say that. It is not racist to say the China virus or the Wuhan virus. That was in January 20th on the left. By April, they had gone back and changed that headline online without saying anything and changed it to called novel coronavirus. And they've ever since called it COVID to distance themselves from their role and making the world sick and killing over 7 million people and it hasn't stopped yet. Believe me, they did it on purpose. They allowed, they didn't create the virus, they escaped by accident, but they allowed it to leave China and go to the rest of the world because their, their thought was, we're not going down alone. Slide. And so here's how that works. Biological warfare, information warfare, economic warfare, actual warfare. On the right side, you see the PRC perspective. That guy's name is Sunzu, not Sunzu, but I'll go with Sunzu. And it's called, the, he wrote The Art of War, and this is winning without fighting. They're fighting us in the economic, the legal, the biological, in every space. They just haven't started pulling lanyards and killing people yet uh, with guns and ammo. They're killing us with other ways. On the left side is our perspective. This is the Clausewitzian typical perspective. It's what you and I have all assumed, right? And the it's, it's in the diplomats' channels to negotiate, manage, up until the point where it's not manageable, like Iraq 1991, at which point we take this big stinky bag of stuff and we chuck it over the fence to the military. They go in there and smite the bad guys, get everything fixed, and then throw that thing back over to the diplomats. That's a beautiful model, but it actually doesn't work that way in the real world. We need to start thinking more like the Chinese and Sunzu, Sunzu uh, on the right side slide. So winning for them means getting back to this former grandeur nature or this grandeur they claim. It's mythological. They've done great things, but there never was this great time of, of uh, uh, Chinese power and strength. It, it's always been, in some ways, uh, muted. But it's a great story. It's a great myth. And through information warfare, they are able to perpetuate that. But they do target all of those economic tech, info governance, and all those advantages we have. And we still maintain, but we're going to have to fight for it going forward. Slide, please. 
information warfare. I'm just going to give you a whole bunch of examples of what it looks like. They are, th these are called memes and, and images bypass all of your cognitive filters that you use when you read. But when you see images, you, they, it bypasses that, it goes straight to your reptilian brain and you have to actually fight for it. So I, I bang the drum on cognitive uh, warfare and on critical thinking. We have to start teaching our kids to think critically, to question everything. Biden held a democracy summit and this was their response. Showed the Titanic going down. I'm telling you, there were Americans that saw this. Go, yeah, why are we doing a democracy summit? Why? Because it opposes the authoritarian regime. Slide, please. Uh, keep going. Next slide. Uh, here they are. This is after G7, where we basically, for the first time with Pompeo out there, said, we're going to have to fight these guys. We're going to have to defend our economies against the PRC and Russia in this case. And so this is the meme they put out saying, you know, we don't want to go back to a Cold War. And you still hear people today saying, oh, it's not a Cold War. Trust me, it is a Cold War. There is a great resistance to start shooting because that could escalate to nuclear exchanges, which they could do. So we're going to try to keep it below the threshold of kinetic warfare, but it is warfare nonetheless. Slide, please. Food. Uh, I love this line. Um, you don't know something's true until uh, Global Times denies it or until People's Daily denies it. So they're saying bumper harvest. I mean, it's going great. They're having severe uh, food issues because of Ukraine and a bunch of other things. So more information warfare. Slide. I like this one because it's subtle, but it's effective. If you look at the way they drew this thing, it says the onus is on the United States to avoid another Cold War. The panda is leading, leaning back. You see that? The eagle is leaning forward. The eagle's got a sharp talon. The panda's a big fuzzy doughy thing. What that shows is aggression. And then it says you need to meet China halfway. That says the relationship is out of balance uh, in favor of the U.S., and we just need to give China one here to get it back in balance. The fact is the relationship is out of balance, but it's in, in favor of the Chinese. And, and Americans who really should know better have been, okay, yeah, we'll give them a little bit more. You've had four major uh, senior leaders in the U.S. Uh, government, Raimondo, Yellen, uh, Kerry, and now um, and then Blinken, have all gone to China to beg them to, I don't know what. That's not how it works. We need to, we need to stand strong for our own uh, uh, rights for our own economic power and all the rest and, and reject these information warfare memes and the rest. Slide please. But we need to use critical thinking. We don't teach that well in school. Critical thinking doesn't always work. Here's an example of a uh, massive failure. On the left, they were launching their first space station. And it says China's lighting a fire as that thing goes up in space. And on the right is India burying their people, funeral pyres for all the dead from COVID. And they are mocking India uh, who are dying from a virus that they perpetuated and then exported. That got India on the right side. I'll leave that there, that's good. Uh, family planning, they went from one child policy, now suddenly you couldn't have more than one child, now suddenly you have to have, if you're a woman, you have to have three children by law. Who wants to live under that? Slide please. Uh, they tried to blame everybody except for themselves and it almost worked. That's a, uh, a doctor named Lee uh, who, was the first guy to say, hey, there's a pandemic going here and could have saved the world from the pandemic, but they shut him down. They arrested him. <clears throat> he died uh, two months later of the disease that he tried to warn us all about. Slide. Here's losing. Uh, Daryl Morey, general manager of the Rockets, said we export Hong Kong in the, during the riots of 2000, the protests of 2019. And then we had an NBA player who was way, making way too much money in China who said, yeah, he doesn't understand the real thing. That knowing full well that we had genocide going on, racially motivated genocide, and we have people who know better in the U.S. who are defending China. 
but not Enos Cantor Freedom on the right, a Turkish basketball player who lost his job at the Boston Celtics because he was not going to be silenced. Build that slide, please, by wearing shoes like this. Those Nike shoes are made with slave labor, and he is not going to stand for it. So good on him. If, if you know Enos Cantor, uh, or if you have any uh, ability to uh, sway the folks who are putting up the Olympics coming up in Paris in the next year, let's get Enos <coughs> Cantor Freedom to either play on the Olympic team or coach the Olympic team. He deserves it. Slide, please. Uh, they don't handle uh, snark very well. They don't handle uh, ridicule very well. That's a great tool we have. We should use that. Slide, please. Uh, this is how the, you saw the memes the PRC does. We've got up our game. This is what the U.S. does in response. Anodyne and boring written statements. We've got to get better at this stuff. We have rules that keep us from going too far, but we can do better than that. Slide, please. Uh, I'm going to talk quickly about the, the, food, the problems the PRC faces. One of those right now is they've mismanaged their uh, food and things. And I'll, I can tell you why if you care. But uh, So I'll just point out that when I tell you guys to count noses, like on this, uh, on this thing we're doing today, I would say, let's count heads or let's count noses, right? The word for population in China is ren ko. Ko is mouth. They count mouths because food has always been a problem. Uh, build, please, in, in Chinese culture and history. It's always been a problem. So, and they face that today. They just can't grow enough food to feed themselves. Most of their food comes from us. Slide, please. You're right. The Babylon Bee is fantastic. It is our, that is a strong weapon. So good on you, Faith, for that. Um, uh, other problems with communism. Um, it, it was a great society. It was going very well. Uh, and then for a lot of reasons, I can explain later, they decided to adapt to communism. The other side, the nationalists, the Kuomintang, now is in Taiwan. And they took, they, they had their problems. They were a fairly rough authoritarian government in 1949, but with our help and others, they quickly transitioned to a democracy and they are a vibrant democracy. I was just there last week. They are on fire. Um, but again, it's an open democracy and it's subject to manipulation and we got to help them keep the PRC manipulators, the guys pushing money around out. Uh, slide, please. Keep going. There's a bill, that's what it looks like today. If you're a kid in China today, you are gonna support six adults. There is no social safety net, so they are gonna to have to yang lao, which means to help your, uh, the elders get through life. Slide. Uh, Faith's point about, um, we're not, I, you're right, we, we do have some moments of, of brilliance. This is a great one. This is a photo of uh, two sailors on the USS something, I think it's McCain, in the South China Sea, and that ship in the background is their first aircraft carrier, the Liaoning which they are all agog. I mean, they're, they're wedding cakes that look like the Yaoning and hats and all the rest. And this picture was specifically designed as an information warfare tool. Look at the CO, the skipper. He's on the left. He's probably got a beer in his left hand, but he can't show it because alcohol's not allowed. He's so relaxed. And his XO on the right, they're both just kind of casually looking at this thing like, we scoff your Liaoning here in the South China Sea, which we own. That got censored immediately. As soon as it hit the Chinese internet, they censored it. That's a good sign. It means we're winning. Slide. That's all I got. I look forward to your questions. Sorry if I went long, but uh, there's so much more to say. Uh, over to you. You didn't go long. You went, you went well. My reaction was, I want you to invite me to come spend a week at your house. Uh, this, this, is quite, this is quite amazing. I, I want to just walk through several questions, fire at you. Russia and China, say a word more about, you said anybody who thinks they're together is wrong. Tell me more about that. Uh, openly hostile since 1689, Treaty of Nurchinsk. Uh, in, uh, in 1860, Russia took back a whole chunk of China. That has not left. 
that is firmly in Chinese memory. When I talk to my PLA counterparts, my People's Liberation Army, <clears throat> Chinese military counterparts, I go, you guys are griping about Taiwan and South China Sea, but the Russians got Vladivostok and they're your friends. You should take it back. And they're going, yeah, yeah, well, we don't talk about that because, you know, it's going to create frictions with our Russian friends. Um, they fought an open war with the Russians in 1969 on the Usuri River tank battle. I mean, they have hated each other for a long time. They still hate each other. When Xi Jinping went to Moscow in July, I think, uh, the official Chinese publication printed a map of seven areas of China that Russia stole from us and that we are going to take back. They printed that and they look, assume they know the Russians are going to read that. That's basically a, a, a jab and saying, you know, we're now Russia, you're weak. Uh, you're losing in Ukraine. You need to give us some uh, of our uh, territory back. There is absolutely no love lost. And that this is all going to come to a head in Central Asia. Charlie Wilson's war, Afghanistan and all the Central Asian former Soviet republics where China is taking over. And it's annoying the, the heck out of the uh, out of the Russians that they don't like each other. Take just a short moment and, re, uh, and uh, define, if anybody's not historically attuned, the term Silk Road. Silk Road was basically the trade route from Europe to, to China. Spaghetti uh, is basically Chinese noodles that the Marco Polo and others, not Marco Polo, he's the exemplar, but this has been going <coughs> back and forth for a millennia. Chinese silks in exchange for European dry goods, um, guns and such like that. China, what we think of as, you know, tape place, you know, uh, plates and cups and stuff like that. It's called China for a reason because we got it from China and it's made from bones of dead people, bone China and animals and stuff. Oh, uh, one belt, one road. Now, does that that phrase, does that include the ports that they're building? Central America, South America, Africa, building large ports for countries all over the world. And if I'm not mistaken, the countries are saddled with debt. These aren't gifts. They're supposed to pay China back. And allegedly, this is supposed to allow China to have complete access into all their respective harbors and ports. Talk to us about that. That, that's pretty much entirely true. So the way it works is uh, you approach the leaders of Kenya, Tanzania, say, and you come in with bags of cash and you'd say, hey, you know, we're going to build you a billion dollar road stadium, whatever, but we're going to charge you eight billion. Right. But some of that box sheesh is coming back to us. You're going to get some of it. Uh, and the only people are going to have to pay for that is your people. Well, in a democratic country, Let's say in a non-democratic country, the leader can do that with impunity. So the, the leaders get rich. The PRC knows that the, the country can't possibly pay back those loans. And so they, the, there's, a, there's a, um, a paragraph in the agreement that says, if you don't pay back our money, we're going to take a port, a runway, uh, airfield, or a chart, large chunk of space. This happened in Sri Lanka at a port called Hambantota. They built them a $1 billion um, port facility and they charged them $8 bucks for it. And then they negotiated that into sovereign access to ports and stuff. So this is how they're doing it. Like, they're not the first to do debt trap diplomacy. Uh, there are a lot of Europeans who've done the same thing. So let's not get too high and mighty. But in this current age, <clears throat> the information age, we all know what they're doing. And so, and they're doing it in weak countries, uh, countries with weak governance structures, and they're doing it in democracies. They did it in Malaysia. But the good news is in democracies, the elections come around and when it, and the key to this is an honest media, which we don't have right now. Again, we need to advocate for a media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, all of them got to get back to their roots of telling the truth and not spinning stuff <clears throat> as clickbait to make money. But if you have an honest and transparent media in Malaysia, they point out the fact that the leader, Najib, 
allegedly took money uh, from the Chinese in a one MDB bank scandal and then gave away a Malaysian sovereignty in the, in the process. <laughs> the election came around, that story came out and Najib was booted. That's a good outcome. This is how democracies can defeat this over. Most countries see through this or are most of the countries, they're, they're doing this in so many countries, most of the countries being duped by them. Uh, it's, it's a mixture of both. It's happening in our own country uh, because remember we're a federal system, but the states can make their own deals. So the governor of Alaska made a sweet deal with, with China that, that absolutely does not benefit the Alaskan people or anybody on fish, fruit, and the rest of this stuff. So uh, all countries are susceptible to it. It, it caters to uh, mankind's worst um, you know, problems, uh, greed, um, dis, you know, dishonesty. I mean, you, you name the seven deadly sins and they, they cater to all of them, greed being the primary one. So uh, look, many of you may have had or you know people who've been approached by the PRC to go on all expense paid junket to China. Uh, and, and all that's doing is buying influence. There is a congressman from Utah who said his wife, who's on the school board of 100,000 people, a small town in America, got a fully paid five, 10,000 paid junket dollar junket to China. Why? To influence her vote on the school board and to influence her congressman husband to don't be so rough on China. And it works. If it's stupid and it works, it's not stupid. And so we've got to get, you know, and, and the key to all this is the media transparency, right? Expose all this stuff. Sunlight is a great disinfectant, but we need a media that's going to do that. And we have yet Fox News to a point, but the rest are, I mean, they're, they're putting China Daily inserts in the Sunday New York Times. The, uh, the leadership of Alaska can cut a deal with a, uh, like the CCP and our federal government lets that go through? Um, there is actually a law that says you cannot treat treaty. You can't treat at the national, at the national level with states, uh, but it's, it's kind of a squishy law that it can happen. It, it, there's some stuff you have to do, but no, we just let it happen. <coughs> it, it was, he was in Mar-a-Lago. Where, where the President Trump did a magnificent job of saying, we are not putting up with this anymore. 57 T-LAMs on a Syrian Air Force base to follow up on the Obama threat uh, to do something if they were to use chemical weapons on our people. Uh, President Trump followed through during dessert. And they said that the look on Xi Jinping's face when he got, when someone whispers in there, says Trump, that was intentional, by the way, that was a message. And he just kind of went, well, okay, uh, the game has changed. And truly it did. Yeah, yes, I heard about that. You used a phrase, I thought you said, the One Belt, One Road policy was dying. Did I misunderstand you? No, Italy just backed up. And there are lots of others who are getting ready. All you need is one. Everybody waits for the first one because they fear that the PRC's reaction, economic warfare, is going to uh, you know, not allow Italy to uh, sell fiats in China anymore or whatever it is that Italians export. And Italians just said, I mean, Maloney is magnificent. I, I mean, she just... Uh, can't say enough about her. She's just not taking it anymore. Uh, about Italy? Italy? Yeah. Huh? How about Italy? Italy had the new uh, prime minister in Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. She's yeah, great. Yeah. She's just saying we're not doing this anymore. Hey, the, the, the first country to really get sick with COVID in January of 2020 was Italy. And that's because Northern Italy in uh, Firenze, uh, uh, Florence, Milan, there are a whole bunch of Chinese factories building knockoff Burberry, Gucci, all these bags for export to the Chinese um, luxury market. There's 300,000 Chinese workers there. They're all coming back from China at the time, sick. And that's why Italy was the first country to go down with COVID hard uh, early on. 
China is massive. Taiwan is tiny. Why can't they just be happy with what they've got? They've got a huge country and leave Taiwan alone. Why do they have to be so... Because Taiwan, Taiwan shows just how good it could be if, a, if there was a two-party democratic system in the PRC. The reason I say CCP is because you can't blame the Chinese people for this because the Chinese people don't get a vote. If the Chinese people were able to vote for these policies and say, we're going to do one belt, one road, you know, don't get trapped, then, then I would say China's a problem. But the Chinese people, the government doesn't care enough about its own people to hear what they say or to allow them to vote, but it works in Taiwan. And so Taiwan's a very prosperous TSMC. I mean, their semiconductor uh, capabilities are world leading. I mean, even we don't have three nanometer capability like Taiwan does. And that's because they allow free thought, they encourage innovation, uh, they don't squash religion, uh, they allow all religions, and they, you know, Christianity is vibrant in Taiwan today. You are one of the finest I've ever seen with such content-rich explanations. You say more than four sentences the average person does in 10 paragraphs. So uh, give us an overview of Shine Kai-shek. Who was he? Why he was important? So um, democratic government is not a normal state. The natural human state under um, Malthus and, and even uh, Maslow uh, is an authoritarian might makes right state. You know, one small group collects all the strength, power, weapons, economy, and all that stuff and runs. Democracy is a level up from that. It takes a few things to be able to be democratic. One, you've got to have some level of prosperity. Uh, the people have to have time to think, talk, and relax. And there's a number of things required as you move up the leadership pyramid to become a democracy. Um, Zhang Jiexer is his name. It, uh, the southern pronunciation from the south is Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, was not a Democrat. Uh, he claimed to be a Christian. I don't doubt that. His wife, Song Meiling, uh, Madam Song, uh, was very outspoken uh, Christian lady from graduated from Wellesley and all the rest. I'm sure the marital influence there had a lot to do with Zhang Jiexer's uh, his beliefs and all the rest, but he wasn't a Democrat. So when he moved to Taiwan, he basically in a small way invaded with a lot of these nationalists who were on the mainland that had to escape. Otherwise, because they lost the civil war, they had to plant the flag elsewhere. So in 1949, 1950, Taiwan was not a happy place. And there was a lot of friction with the existing people in Taiwan with the new import Chinese from, from the mainland. He had a son, Zhang Jingguo, CCK, uh, who married a Russian girl. Uh, the Russians were actually, the Soviets were actually very much interested, not in the Chinese Communist Party, but in the, the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party, because they fit all of the criteria for, you know, building up a communist revolution. So there was a long time uh, relationship with the Russians and then the Soviets at the time. But Zhang Jingguo was a big step toward democratizing. And then finally, um, uh, the, the first true democratic, democratically elected leader, uh, Li Ka... I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, uh, it was uh, about 20 years later, we begin to see it in 1970s, we start to see a strong uh, Chinese democracy grow. And then look, we had a lot to do with it. A lot of American influence, a lot of tutelage from us because we were their ally through 1979 is what allowed them to stand up uh, a again what we see today. So, uh, but the PRC can do it too. They just, they, they were getting close to that after the Tiananmen incident in 1989, um, Deng Xiaoping took a more pragmatic perspective, let the people talk, opened up the media space so that people could complain and talk and, and you know, entertain the idea of having a democracy. And then Xi Jinping put a, a an end to all that. When I was in Beijing, it's a fantastic say, 
Xi Jinping came to power in November 2012. And you, it, I, history has passed me by so many times. Dot-com bust, you know, all these things. The fall of the Soviet Union completely missed it. You could not miss the arrival of Xi Jinping. And it, it was absolutely palpable. You could feel it. Things had changed. Uh, before I go to my next question, just a reminder, I forgot, I need to remind you, we have this wonderful uh, $10,000 match as a gift. I got so excited about the questions, I forgot I was supposed to go to that early on the questions, I forgot. But uh, folks, we have an offer that's been given to us by a donor, $10,000, if you will match it. So if you'll go to wellversedworld.org and just click on the give button, you go right there. Thanks, Alan, for bringing that up. You go right there and click on the give button at wellversedworld.org and make a donation. And we need to get that $10,000 so we can match that. And thank you. Thank you in advance for doing it. Thank you for already people giving. Uh, we need to get that, that goal reached pretty quickly. My next question, Uyghurs, why are they killing the Uyghurs? Have you ever seen the movie Minority Report with Tom Cruise pretty much tells you they predict that because they're uh, a Muslim faith, remember they're, they are scared to death of any authority higher than the Communist Party, atheist uh, um, philosophy. The Uyghurs scare them to death because they are ethnically Muslim and they're, and they're spiritually Muslim and they're not ethnically Han Chinese. There's an entire group of Chinese ethnically Han Chinese who are also follow Islam. They're called the Hui. And they're typically the butchers. When you go to the market and stuff, they're the ones who handle the meat and stuff. You can buy halal um, kosher meat from the Hui. They don't fear them that much because they've been acclimated and they too have signed up to this. We're really atheists, but what, you know, we, we say we're Muslim, but we're not really. The uh, Uyghurs definitely believe what they say. They are from the hinterland. Oh, by the way, Xinjiang, if you look at what the meaning of Xinjiang means, it means the new frontier. It was annexed in 1950. And so contrary to their claims, Xinjiang has not always been part of China. In fact, it's the first time Xinjiang has actually been part of China. It was East Turkestan. So there's a group called the East Turkestan Independence Party that is actively clamoring for to cut Turkestan away and take it back from, and Tibet was the same way. Tibet was an independent country for a long time, but the PRC annexed it in 1950, killing millions in the process. So that's why they fear them is because they still think that they are really part of China anymore. They still actively clamor for independence. And when I was there in 2012, this is not a happy story, but I have to smile. A Jeep with three Uyghurs and a whole bunch of gas crashed into Mao's photo in Tiananmen Square and caught fire, killing some uh, Chinese tourists in the process. The three Uyghurs burned to death. But there were, I mean, can you imagine the shock in the leadership compound just to the left of Tiananmen Square? It's called Zhongnan High. Can you imagine the shock? of seeing a burning Jeep right with under Mao's picture. I mean, that, that this is their greatest fear, like we saw in 1989 in the Tiananmen Square thing, that the students were gonna march on Zhongnan High, which is just down the street, and, and throw the bums out and demand democracy like the Americans and the Taiwans, and the South Koreans and Japanese all have. And that's why they rolled over them all with tanks because they couldn't stand for that. Distinguish the underground illegal church in China from the above ground church that's registered with the state? That's a very good question. Um, you're seeing what the Pope is doing right now. It's really unfortunate. And I think overall the Catholic church in China is pretty much, you know, catering and doing all that the, the, peers, the government asks. And so it's it's truly adulterated. It's not Christianity. It's not faith. It's, it's basically serving the Communist Party. Okay, so the, uh, okay, there's probably three layers of this. These are the underground church. If you remember, there was a guy named Wang Yi uh, who was arrested because he refused to be silenced, and he continued his home church. And they 
arrested, disappeared him, and we haven't heard from him since. When these things happen, my friends uh, of faith can't let those words, they can't let their name disappear. You have to continually say their name because otherwise the PRC cannot be held account. Disappearing people is the best tactic in this case. Russians did it, Soviets did it, and the Chinese do it. When Peng Shui, the tennis player who, you know, just basically said, hey, I was raped by a senior CCP leader, she was disappeared and people stopped talking about Peng Shui. I mention her name every one of these because you've got to say their name. Wang Yi, that's his name. Um, run underground church. It is absolutely vibrant. Um, uh, faith doesn't flourish until it is put under the test, until it's pressurized. That's why I say our church in, in our time in Beijing was the best we've ever had, because even we were under pressure. I could not be a missionary in our country. I just couldn't knock on people's doors on Saturday morning and have you considered your eternal you know, existence. Being a missionary in China was so simple. I'm, pro I'm prohibited as a diplomat from proselytizing. But every time I drive by our church, I'd say, hey, just a woman at Jiaotang, that's our church over there. And every time the cab driver who's been told his whole life, there's nothing higher than this life, all know to a person, there's more to this. And they would all ask, can you tell me more? That's simple. That's, you know, that is easy. He asked me, I didn't, I didn't, I'm not pushing this on. He asked me what I believe. And I told him what I believe in Chinese. It was just easy. My wife and I recently went to the border, spent time there. Every single person we saw that had come through the night before that was in the line for the processing center was military age, young male Chinese. Every single person we saw on the other end, they had to be reprocessed through there in 72 hours or less. Every single person that came on the other end, all were Chinese except, and were males, except there were two Chinese women in that particular group. What is happening? That's by design. Look, you can't leave the the, the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Articles 12, 13 and 14 and 15 all talk about being able to emigrate, being allowed to leave your country. The PRC signed that document, but they don't abide by it. You cannot leave China without permission of the government. Um, so therefore, those people that are coming across the border are coming across by design. They're being allowed to come. They're being told. I'm sure they know which uh, coyote groups to go through to get them to the border and they come across. Um, most of them will look at what's going on here. We are a very open and welcoming society. They'll go, I'm glad I escaped that mess. I ain't going back. The only reason that they're going to do something bad is if their parents or family are being held hostage, which happens. So, you know, they may be activated or whatever it is. And then when they don't do what they're told to do, they could say, you know, gun to dad's head. You need to do what we're telling you to do. So it is a problem. It's a huge problem. That's why we have to secure our borders because we need to know who's coming into our country. And this is why we close the Houston consulate. There, <clears throat> There's an agreement that we have five consulates in China, but they have five consulates in the U.S., San Francisco, Chicago, <clears throat> um, Los, An Los Angeles, Houston, and New York. They were doing such terrible things at Houston, way above what they, their normal uh, nefarious activity, that we just said that's enough. They're trying to steal the vaccine formula so they could then sell those vaccines to the world and say, we saved you from the pandemic we started. But, but again, people have short memories. They are still trying to deny that the PRC started the pandemic. They're trying to blame it on some, you know, a pangolin kissed the turtle, to quote John Stewart. Uh, it, it happened in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Anyway, um, those people are coming across the border. We, so we closed the Houston consulate because of this incredibly out, just, you know, the complete violation of their the diplomatic status. Um, but they were doing stuff. So don't believe for a minute that those individuals coming across the border aren't also intending to do things. But why, 
they don't have to attack stuff. They're buying property surrounding American military bases and we're selling it to them. This is what Lenin said. You will sell us the rope, we will hang you with. And we're still doing that. There's a process called CFIUS, the Committee for Foreign Investment in the U.S. It should be screening this stuff, but they're not. And gosh, we got to stop it. Is it too far gone? No, it's never too late. We can we can manage all these things, but we're going to have to get serious. We have to do it soon. Not only the land around military bases, but just farmland in general. Why are they biting that up? Food. I told you earlier, food's a big deal in the PRC, and they need a guaranteed supply. They bought Smithfield. I mean, the biggest pork producer in the world. And they own it. So, is that going to be used not only to get food for them, but the CCP to starve the Americans? Well, I think it is, but I don't think they'll go there uh, again. Once they do that, we just nationalize and say that's enough of that. We're in. sorry, we own it, uh, so we have the ability to do that. Um, but no, but it does give them control. Uh, you know, we have a national strategic uh, petroleum reserve, national petroleum reserve. I'm not kidding you; they have a strategic pork reserve. Pork is that important in their diet? That's another reason to buy Smithfield. Uh, what you've been saying is is dependent upon strong leadership in in Washington D.C., and we don't have. So we're, I think we're quite vulnerable. But Hong Kong, the status of Hong Kong? Done. Uh, January 2020, I mean, June 2020, they passed this thing called the National Security Law. Hong Kong ceased to exist in any form. It is not autonomous, has no sovereignty at all. It is part of the mainland, and we should treat it like that. Unfortunately, there's enough people like, I mean, I won't mention major investment banks that live in Manhattan, um, but their initials are Gulf Sierra. Uh, have way too much to lose. They've got way too much sunk in Hong Kong uh, and they pressure the Congress and others to take it easy on them. And we absolutely have to acknowledge the fact that Hong Kong is just another terrible Chinese coastal city like Guangzhou and Shenzhen and all the rest and treat it as such because it gives the PRC an advantage because you can launder <clears throat> renminbi, the Chinese currency, in the Hong, the Hong, Hong Kong Shanghai Bank of China, HSBC. They are able to we allow them for some reason the ability to, to take renminbi, which is non-convertible, convert it into dollars and that, that benefits. China has two central banks, the People's Bank of China and HSBC. No other country has that. We've got to put a stop to that. China built a lot of cities that could handle a million or more than a million people and they all said empty. Why? Because the only thing that holds value in China today is real estate. <clears throat> the only thing that keeps provincial governments afloat financially is they abscond with farmland, another reason they don't have any food, they abscond with uh, some poor farmer's farmland, they pay them a couple bucks, and then they build high rises on that land. And then that is the only, and that's what generates cash for the province to do all the things it needs to do to provide goods, services, security, and all the rest. The central government does not do a lot to fund these things. These are called unfunded requirements that come out of Beijing. And so, there's all these high rises being built because a good Chinese family would make whatever money they could and they would bank it. They have the highest savings rate in the world right now. I think maybe I'm on par with Japan, but they saved incredibly. And nothing's to say the government's not going to change their mind like they did under Mao Zedong and just take all their money. So the only thing that you can buy that holds any value is real estate. They used to buy five or six houses. They were all leveraged buys, but they, you know, this is how they took their money and put it in something that was you know, real. It's called budongshan, non-moving property things. Uh, real, um, but that was the only thing they considered to hold money. By the way, they own a lot of property in the U.S. too. And if you look at the housing market today, what happened in the late 90s with Japan, when the Japanese economy sort of froze, the Japanese folks who owned a lot of that property had to dump it all. 
And all of a sudden, the, the American market opened up and suddenly my kids could afford to buy a house. I'm still waiting for that to happen. So they do buy property overseas. They also buy property in China. It's mostly poor Chinese who are forced to buy property in China. And that's why. So these houses are all built, uh, but they expect to then rent, uh, rent them out or resell them. And that's not happening. And America, the Chinese people are very angry right now that they're left holding the bag on these mortgages that they couldn't possibly pay. The banks are demanding they pay. Uh, and, you know, it's because the government has locked up the economy to the point they can't sell the stuff. Do we have any sensing, any way to know what percentage of the population actually supports the CCP? Well, 94 million do because their you know, entire livelihood rides on it. 94 uh, million parties. I, I don't know. That's a really good question. I think some do. Um, some number do. It, they say that heaven uh, heaven is high and the emperor is far away. Everything I'm talking about is what you're going to see in Beijing and Shanghai, Guangzhou, the, the major cities on the coast. But the further you get away from that, I spent a lot of time on the Burma border in a province called Yunnan. It's like being in anywhere else in Kansas, you know, Iowa. <laughs> there are people are a lot of fun. They're very irreverent. They 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 scoff the party. Um, I didn't say that, by the way, for the people who are listening. Uh, they are very obedient and good Chinese communists. But but no, the reality is that uh, there is uh, the emperor's too far away to actually inflict all this stuff on them. So the further you get away from the flagpole, the more normal it seems. It's possible that they do support uh, the government. Um, I don't know, but that's a good question. Somebody should do a survey on that. I'm glad you referenced Kansas. I'm a Kansan, so thank you for portraying it. Something besides Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, a, a, one of my friends, who's really economically quite brilliant, says China is economically not in good shape. It's bad shape, and it will collapse. Your thoughts? Uh, a guy named Gordon Chang wrote a book in 2001 called The Coming Fall of China. Maybe it was 2010, but yeah, I mean, I love Gordon Chang. He's a smart guy, and all the indications were there. But look at North Korea. It's been ready to collapse since 1985 or so with the demise of the Soviet Union. And they keep on plugging um, through crook, hooking by crook and criminal activity and the rest. So, yeah, uh, it, I'm sure the Chinese economy can tolerate a lot more pain. Um, but again, it's a much bigger economy. And there are a lot more people who can exert pressure on it. Um, North Korean economy is pretty much self-supporting for the most part. Um, a lot of people starve because of that, but I, I don't know. This is a, one of those, you know, parlor tricks that people predict, you know, 2025, 2027, 2049, who knows? <clears throat> but it's under a great strain. And that, remember, the, the unholy deal with the Chinese people is that you allow the Communist Party to run single party. You allow us to lead and you follow us and don't resist us and you will get rich. And the next generation will be better off than your generation. That was the unholy uh, uh, arrangement that no longer exists. Uh, then this next generation uh, has nothing. They're what, 25% unemployment uh, between 18 and 25. College graduates who are happy to get a job as a barista in Starbucks or, or looking coffee or whatever. That is not a recipe for stability. Oh, by the way, the Chinese government spends more on the domestic version of the People's Liberation Army. It's called the uh, Wujing, the People's Armed Police. They spend more on that than they do on their external military that we're all facing right now. All those destroyers and carriers and tanks and all that stuff, they spend money, they spend less money on that than they do on domestic control. And that's just the military. There's a Ministry of State Security, Ministry of Public Security, the Chungwan. There's at least four major layers that you can see. Any Anybody from a free country can see those layers of security as you walk through the Chinese police state. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that Wellversed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the Wellversed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.